I, I really have sort of taken on like this kind of transracial identity where I often see and think maybe like a white American might because I was raised by white Americans and my last name is not Lee or Kim or Wynn, it's Meyer. And so in funny ways, like that's kind of caught up to me and become a little bit of a liability at certain moments. And it's totally a product of having this confidence that comes from having an identity, you know, as sort of a, a pseudo white American would given my circumstances and family and how I grew up, but then like running into these roadblocks that minorities and Asian people in American society face. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Lindsay Meyer. Lindsay is the founder of and CEO of Batch, a shoppable home staging startup that works with high-end residential realtors, developers, and builders to create beautiful, bespoke spaces. Her career has spanned a diverse set of industries, ranging from venture capital to biotech and to retail. In 2017, she was honored as Times Person of the Year. In this episode, we spoke with Lindsay about growing up in the Midwest as a Korean adoptee and taking on a transracial identity, how her inner narrative differed from how others would perceive her and expect her to act based on her outward appearance, and why she made the decision to speak on record as part of the Me Too movement about being harassed while raising capital. So the question we like to start off with is, what was your favorite food growing up? It can be a family dish, it can be fast food, anything that resonates with you. <laughs> that is a great question because it reflects so much of like how I grew up, which is very meat and potatoes in the Midwest. So my favorite food as a kid was mashed potatoes. <laughs> and it was great that I was just with my family for Christmas because I had my mom's mashed potatoes and like put a lot of butter on them. And it was just like everything that my childhood tasted like. So ate a lot of, ate a lot of starchy <laughs> bowls of mashed potatoes for dinner as a kid. So where did you, where did you grow up as a kid? And what was that upbringing like? Yeah. So I was born in South Korea and I was adopted by white parents in the Minneapolis suburbs. So I grew up in Minnesota, you know, pretty interesting because there weren't a ton of people that looked like me living there. And as a child, I have these memories of being kind of a racial aberration. Like most of my childhood was late 80s and 90s. And in the early 90s, there was a show on PBS, Barney, Big Purple Dinosaur. And there was like this young Asian girl named Min on the show. And so one day I was at the grocery store with my mom and this woman came up 
to us and asked my mom if I was the girl on Barney because probably this woman had just like not seen a lot of, you know, six or seven year old um, little kids that had an Asian face or black hair. And I'm pretty sure she followed this up with some sort of commentary about how oriental I was. And, you know, she just had to stop and ask in case it was actually me. And it's just, you know, I was never really like bullied very much at school, but as a kid, there's VHS video somewhere in my parents' basement, probably of me talking about how when I grew up, I wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes and like drive a convertible and live in California. Fortunately, I I got the California part. Um, Everything else is maybe still a work in progress. My dad, my dad was a firefighter in this town and every October, he would bring a fire truck to my school and teach our class about fire safety. Like, I remember having this sense of pride that like my dad was this hero to all of the other kids at school. But I think below that, it was the one day every year at school that like, other kids in my class would see that my parents looked like their parents, if that makes any sense. And I think that there's like a lot of parts of growing up Asian in America that are difficult to align with due to having a white family. Like I can relate to wanting to be part of the majority versus the minority. As children, and I'm sure for a lot of people, even as adults, this idea of wanting to fit in and wanting to be part of what you see in mainstream media is a really powerful force. And especially coming from your background, I'm sure it was really challenging trying to reconcile these seemingly really different parts of your identity and trying to bridge them into who you really saw yourself as. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so I think the interesting part of my story is specifically related to being adopted. And to be maybe controversial for a second, I think a lot of adopted kids can end up fairly messed up. Like a lot of things can go wrong when you take a child, specifically like a young child and try to like place it in another family and hope that everything goes well. It's ended up working itself out in like these patterns that I'm only starting to like make note of and, and see how they've impacted my life, both positively and negatively. Like a lot of them have turned out to be really self-serving. Like I think some adopted children who kind of go more towards like a high functioning pathway, needing to perform, to get love or to have security, to get validation. And so for me, like I've had this long, long, deep issue with perfectionism and a need to project a certain image of success and sufficiency and a really, really strong aversion to the idea of being needy or of having needs because maybe as a young child, I internalized that if you're too needy or if you have too many needs, people can't fulfill them for you or you won't get them taken care of in the way that you need. And so like all of these forces have really been at play in my life and, and they're very much at play in my work life too. And, you know, I think academic environments really reinforce a lot of these things. Like the more that you study, you'll perform better, you'll score higher, you'll, you know, you'll rank better, you'll 
get more awards, get, you know, better schools, better job opportunities, more money, right? It sort of never ends. And I think just having more awareness about my own unique family history and how it's impacted my life has helped me a lot to have more mindfulness about how I process and prioritize things through a different lens than another person would. The more I can recalibrate some of my decisions with more self-compassion and like less self-criticism. And, you know, that's a very human thing to struggle with, but it's a major theme throughout my life of constantly like beating myself up or voices in your head that like everything has to go right or perfectly like that standard is something that I'm really working hard to dismantle as I get to the midpoint of my 30s now. And Lindsay, I'd love to hear more about how this narrative arc that you grew up with around your identity and this unique bridging of different ethnic and racial islands, how this in conjunction with what you just brought up around the narrative that you tell yourself. I'm curious how you feel like this is manifested in some aspects of your career. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so it's so interesting. I, I really have sort of taken on like this kind of transracial identity where I often see and think maybe like a white American might because I was raised by white Americans and my last name is not Lee or Kim or Wynn, it's Meyer. And there's another funny story there, which is maybe 10 years ago, I was flying to a conference. Um, The chauffeur picking me up from the airport was like holding the sign that said Lindsay Meyer. And so I strolled up and said, you know, hi, good evening, nice to meet you, I'm Lindsay Meyer. And it was like such a quizzical look, right? Because a lot of these drivers are used to picking up like powerful white male executives and you know driving them to their hotels. And I remember him like getting into this conversation with me about like how he assumed immediately that like my last name must be Meyer because I was married. And so like, I think that's an interesting example of just how sometimes like having this Asian outward appearance means so many different things to different people. And then there's sort of like my own kind of way of navigating throughout the world. Building on that a little bit more though, I think what's interesting is that I see now that there've been a lot of times or instances where maybe forgetting like my Asian-ness because it's not like we sit in front of a mirror and like stare at ourselves all day um, has given me maybe more confidence than is good for me Um, because I sometimes forget that the world or American society has these standards about how I should perform or act or function based really on the basis of appearances that like just don't even like cross my periphery as I go about my life and my day. And so in funny ways, like that's kind of caught up to me and become a little bit of a liability at certain moments. Like for one, I really tend to believe that like things should be easy and that if you work hard enough, you should be able to get success in doing something. And you know, oftentimes in my career, that's not been the case. I'll hit choppy water and I'll start treading really quickly and then I'll fatigue just as quickly. And it's totally a product of 
having this confidence that comes from having an identity, you know, as sort of a, a pseudo white American what, given my circumstances and family and how I grew up. But then like running into these roadblocks that minorities and Asian people in American society face. And so it's like that failing to account for how this outward appearance of myself gets perceived by others. And now I know that knowing how to read other people and being able to make these calibrations with them to be effective. And when I was younger, I was even, I think, more confident, ironically, um, and just more unaware or less aware. And so I didn't totally know how to titrate my behavior and my language to make the things that I often desperately wanted to happen occur. And, you know, we can try to thread the needle about my involvement in the Me Too movement here. When I was raising money for my first company, I met an investor and sort of became embroiled in a months long series of events, which were really very harassing. And I, I tell the story in the New York Times, but I really think that that was like sort of this banner example of not being able to read the room well enough to understand that what was happening to me was like about to go off of a cliff. And instead of backpedaling and getting myself out of, of a bad situation, when I could, I sort of like leaned into this instinct to push through what sort of felt just like average, normal bullshit. And, you know, so much of that was just based on these like decades of really racist assumptions about Asian women that were supposed to be timid and submissive or pleasant and well-groomed and mild-mannered and you know like we're supposed to be these petite porcelain dolls and failing to understand how society especially like these elite circles of people that work in finance and write checks and the startups like mine they really tend to overrepresent as white and male and unfortunately often they typecast people like me a korean woman who by the way, doesn't really feel that Korean at all, but still very much looks the part. It's kind of been a major liability for me. You mentioned so many interesting points there. One of them was you not necessarily thinking externally that you are a Korean woman. You're, you are just you and you grew up and you had the courage and the energy to just keep going for it and not necessarily hesitating when you, when you take on new projects or go for different roles or raising money. How would you advise people who think similarly in terms of the fact that their racial identity or their Asian American upbringing shouldn't necessarily deter them and put them down? But then there's at times where you do have to actually take a step back and calibrate. Like how, how, would, you, how would you advise someone to kind of maneuver through those different situations? Two things really come to mind um, in rapid fire. One is just really about like kind of marinating or like sitting in an awareness of what it feels like to bump up against some of these edges. So like, what does it feel like when society or somebody that isn't me or doesn't look like me or, or hasn't had the same life circumstances is perceiving me or judging me in a way that's kind of like counter to my goals. And Maybe if more people took a step back and realized a priori what it means to 
be in those weird situations and feel those feelings, they would be easier to identify as they were happening in real time. Because for me, I was like trying to figure out what the playbook was as it was happening, except the plays were happening really fast. And I hadn't done the mental conditioning to know how to handle those situations or those circumstances. So yeah, I would really encourage people to step into situations and try to unpack how you might act if you were faced with those same scenarios, because you might just end up like being in those situations and you don't get to choose most of the time, whether that happens to you or not. And a thread I really want to pull on here is this idea of this divergence between how people externally perceive your identity versus how you want to tell your narrative and what you perceive your identity and narrative to be. And I'm sure for you, fundraising and working with the news media and all these circles in which there's a lot of white men with a lot of privilege that people of color don't have, I'm sure that really amplified this dichotomy for you of what people perceived versus what you saw as your own truth. And on that context, I'd be really curious to hear about two things. So one, how you thought about your decision to break the news and tell your truth as part of the Me Too movement. And throughout your journey of you know fundraising for your very startups, um, working with the news and going through this whole journey, how what were some examples of how your identity has manifested throughout this journey? Yeah, it's so interesting. To answer your first question about kind of making this really profound, meaty decision about speaking on record about being harassed while raising capital. I did this interview last year with The Cut, which is New York Magazine. And I read it a couple of months ago on like the one year anniversary of the publication of the piece. I was sort of just stunned by how much truth was in that story. Like I think they interviewed 20 or 30 people and my snippet was the opening blurb. But one of the things that came across when I was reading my own like account back to myself was that I had a crippling amount of anxiety in the days leading up to reaching out to the New York Times. And it's funny, I think the term like crippling anxiety gets tossed around as a phrase, but I feel like I have firsthand experience of what it means to embody that. Like I just fell into this incredibly irritated spiral where I was pretty much not sleeping. I wasn't eating. I wasn't even showering. I was sort of just like tethered to my Google newsfeed for a few days. And it was like this form of hell. The one thing that was helpful in that time was I carried around this notebook and um, as things were coming up, I was just writing them down. And as I remembered more and more pieces, it actually kind of gave me the courage to go back and start trying to like thread the evidence together. And as I started to do that, suddenly like some notes in a notebook became like seven pages um, typed of, of evidence that documented you know, what I'd gone through. And it was that that convinced me that I had enough material to be taken seriously. And I think there's something really profound in that, which is I wasn't really sure that people were going to listen to me, that like this was going to mean anything. And I had to somehow kind of find the conviction or the confidence to do that. I think that oftentimes society thinks that if you're being quiet, that you're somehow like compliant. Like if you don't speak up during a meeting that you're on board with everything that everyone else has said. And 
my MO for whatever reason is I've gone about my life or more specifically my work life is that like, I like to sit back, take in as much information as possible, process it and um, try to give really measured, direct, but like meaningful feedback. And I think that because Asians are generally, you know, externally considered as like meek and agreeable that often I'll get completely passed over. You know, I could be in the room, but people like forget that I'm even there almost as if I'm invisible. But then there's another piece or another layer to this, which is like, if you actually say something that's clear and like packs a punch, it can be perceived as really offensive or off-putting to people. Whereas I think that if a white man had said the same thing, no one would even flinch. Maybe a lesser example of this is like the use of swear words, which I like to do, but probably no one is super comfortable with me like using the F word for emphasis. And I get a little bit judged for doing that. I would prefer to live my life in this very like unfiltered and direct fashion, but being like a 110 pound Asian woman is sometimes really at odds with that. I do think that like being an entrepreneur specifically has given me a little bit more leeway here because my understanding and having spent a little bit of time in organizations of different sizes is like bigger companies hold workers or employees to like different rubrics and standards. And actually, I think that that's kind of shitty because in America, not everyone gets to or even should be held to the same rubric as the white men in power. And frankly, that's just the definition of bias. And I think there's really a lot of work to be done here. So these collision forces, they come up all the time for me in my day to day. And, you know, they've frankly been at work in my life for a lot longer than I've even had awareness of. But I think it's so interesting that we can have the conversation and like shed a little bit more light. And Lindsay, we've kind of uh, touched about your career path throughout the past 20 minutes, half an hour, but would love for you to be able to share to ourselves and also the listeners what your career journey has looked like coming to where you are today, what you're up to right now and and kind of where you're hoping to go in the future. Yeah. So it's funny. I think I have like such a mosaic of different professional experiences at this point that if I think too hard about what that means or what I'm supposed to do with this all, like I end up really seriously doubting myself. The first part of my career was anchored in biotech and healthcare investing. And it was a cool opportunity. I had this front row seat to a lot of amazing milestones of a small publicly traded cardiology drug company when I came to the Bay Area in 2008. The company was sold for a billion and a half dollars. Amazing. And then I did consulting and venture capital for a little bit. But it's interesting. In, in 2013, I felt like I had really like groomed for myself this very sterling CV, but I'd spent enough time in drug development and medical device innovating or innovation that I just knew that it wasn't leveraging my personal interests, which were decidedly more creative and consumer focused. And I was still fairly young and idealistic, but it's interesting. I think the more important driving force for me to like turn sharp left and become an entrepreneur and start working on batch was that I really wanted to honor my parents, my adoptive parents who had these very 
middle America, middle class jobs. And I wanted to pave this path for myself that would be about aligning my interests and the things that gave me energy and and were like life-giving with the things that I was good at. And I felt like by my late or the latter part of my 20s, I had enough work experience to know that I was a pretty good strategic planner and analyst. But then on top of that, I'd finally like accrued enough life experience to know that I needed work to like also feed my creative instincts. And and I felt really strongly that my Notre Dame degree, something that neither of my parents have, should be put to use to like open up a world of possibilities that didn't exist for them in the same way. And so becoming an entrepreneur um, was a path to having autonomy. And I'd been marinating for a while on some things that I was really deeply motivated to work on. My current company, Batch, is is pretty interesting. So what we do is we turn homes for sale into these pop-up retail environments where you could buy the house with everything in it, or you can kind of just go in and sort of shop the home as like a little showroom with lots of different brands. We've worked with several hundred different companies and in any given listing, we'll generally have a couple hundred different items or SKUs for sale for people to kind of it's like a petting zoo almost. You can go in and like see what everything looks like in a real home environment, which is pretty cool. And what we sort of think we're trying to do is kind of Airbnb for local or neighborhood retail, which is like we take an existing asset, which is residential real estate, people's homes already exist and kind of reskin or reimagine it for another purpose, which is a place where you can go to discover and buy new cool on the rise products. What's so interesting about Batch though, and I've only started thinking more about this or more deeply about this recently, and I've been on this journey for over four years now, is how I think every founder or any founding story would have elements of this, but like how deeply my company's work and mission is a reflection of me and kind of like the forces at work in my life. And So with Batch, I think like one of the things that really drives me is this opportunity to kind of storytell or like craft and create this alternate place that's beautiful and filled with like the coolest, latest gadgets and things and actually like bringing or birthing these physical experiences and objects um, in the world. And I think that maps so intimately to a lot of like forces that have been at work in my life about maybe feeling one way, but being seen a different way. And in many ways, like Batch kind of allows me to do that. Every time I go into a new location, I get to sort of imagine a different purpose and tell a different merchandising story with product. And so I've been thinking recently about whether that's actually like healthy for me because in some ways, like I'm sort of like playing out this shadow side of my life through my work. And I worry, or I wonder if it's the best, most self-actualized use of my limited time on earth. But for now, like so honored and thrilled to have been able to build the company. We're tracking towards being profitable in 2021, which I'm very excited about. I feel really proud um, in a way that like only someone who's been in the trenches and had to fight a lot of good fights to do it could possibly feel. 
thank you so much for sharing your origin story behind Batch and tying it so intimately to your upbringing too. I think that's such a powerful way to bring all this full circle, right? Like having to be a cultural chameleon almost to feel like you belong, but then leveraging all of those learnings into a strength and being able to tell your truth and manifest your truth through your startup. I think that's so incredibly powerful. And we're so grateful for you to to share that story with us. And to close out, what's something that you did early in your career or even throughout your career that you look back on, you're like, I'm really glad I did that. What was that for you? It sounds so basic, but I worked really, really hard. And I just like, I always took it as a point of pride to be the last person in the office. But honestly, I feel like spending time getting the the details right is something that I honed in on um, in school. And then I definitely ended up carrying it over into my career. You know, I just, I've always believed that there's like this alchemy when you can deliver high quality work, the opportunities will really start to open up. So for me, going back to the basics, it's just always been like, put your head down and and work. And actually I giggle sometimes because that does feel actually very Asian. And for me, that tendency, like maybe didn't necessarily get passed through my parents so much as it did through growing up in America's heartland with all of these farmers and hardworking middle of the country folks. You know, the, the harder you work, the more opportunities open up to you, invites to be on committees or panels or help out executives with their side projects. These things begin to accrue. And then you've started to build a brand and a network of powerful references for yourself. So that's always been kind of first principle for me is, is really work hard. I love it. Something so simple, but also very profound. We have to work hard to be able to achieve what we want to. And a lot of opportunities will come up by just putting your head down and working but also looking up sometimes and and sharing to other people that you're also working really hard. Totally. Lindsay, thank you so much for this time. It's been a pleasure to to speak with you, to get to know you, to hear your story. That was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for being so authentic, so vulnerable. I know that Angie and I really took away a lot from this and I know that our listeners are going to take away a lot from it as well. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.